Welcome to Raza Chats, a bi-weekly podcast about conversational AI, where we talk about open source, applied research, and how our community of makers is building accessible AI. I'm Maddie Mantha from Raza, and I'm your host this week. I'm here with Inez Montani and Matt Hannibal, founders of Explosion and core contributors to Spacey, an NLP library used by many around the world, including us here at Raza. We're here to talk about production grade NLP. Inez and Matt, thanks for joining us. It's always great to chat with our friends at Spacey. Ah, thanks for having us. Cool. Um, before we dive into some of the major stuff that you've been up to recently, tell us a little bit about you know, yourself and your background and how you came to work in NLP. Yeah, I think you should start. <laughs> okay, so um, I've, I decided quite early that, you know, oh, I'll do linguistics as my undergraduate degree. And then, uh, you know, I figured, okay, I, uh, you know, like being a little bit more abstract and, uh, uh, you know, thinking about things. So, I'll, you know, I was always interested in going into academia. Uh, and then quite early in that, I, I uh, realized, like, during my undergraduate that I wanted if I was going to do research, I wanted it to be empirical. And so I started working on uh, uh, sort of developing a subspeciality in computer science or programming so that I could do empirical work with language instead of just, you know, basically armchair theorizing or something like this or field work. I was also, you know, an indoor child and I, you know, didn't fancy going to New Guinea or something. So, uh, you know, this was kind of the way that I, I plotted things out. And then after, during my PhD, I, you know, I managed to get a placement into a computer science department uh, and I started working on these things. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I started doing this around like uh, 2005. Uh, and so I was pretty well placed for uh, the timing of uh, AI and NLP to keep, uh, you know, improving as a technology. And uh, by the time I got to about 2014, I'd been working in the field for a while. I was at around the point where I should be submitting grant applications, which I didn't really like the idea of. And I also wasn't that satisfied with the way that teaching worked in Australia for uh, this type of topic. And so I decided to try my luck at, uh, you know, basically going into industry and uh, doing something independent. I also sort of do many people trying to use academic code uh, in their production systems. And I sort of, you know, this really was something that was quite different in purpose and the code that I had written for my experiments was really designed to print a result and exit uh, and so I saw all right well maybe there's a space for a library that was more designed for production uh, from the start and then soon after I you know set off in this you know journey to do things independently I uh, met up with <laughs> Innes and then uh, we had good complementary skills and so we've been working yeah. together since. Yeah I feel like th this is one story but I feel like I tell this every time I'm asked about this, which is how we first started working together. And um, Matt wanted to do a visualizer for um, syntax. So basically, you know, the little syntax trees, which ended up being one of our most popular demos to date, the little visualizer. But uh, when you first told me about the idea, I felt like, I don't know, it sounded kind of boring. Like I, I understood like what this was about. You know, I'd done linguistics um, in uni, like um, I was interested in this, but I, I, thought, I thought it sounded rather boring. And I, I was like, ah, I'm not sure. I have other work to do. I'm not sure I have time for that. Um, <laughs> but I did end up doing it, obviously. And that's kind of how we started working together and how we started working together on Spacey, which was like, I think, still kind of under development or like just released at the time. So, yeah. 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 I mean, the two of you do have complementary skills because, Matt, you come from like an academic research background. And as your background is primarily in engineering and, and development, would that be? 
I mean, now, now I would say, yeah, that's accurate. Back then, I, I don't know. I was doing like I was doing a lot of front end stuff. Um, that's kind of you know that's what I did as a as a um, as an indoor child uh, when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just I would just sit at home. Um, I don't know when I was like 30, 14, right. whatever, and make websites. And so that that's how I initially started doing stuff with computers in general. And then I, I did do some linguistics. I did do all kinds of stuff. Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, and also, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I never initially, I never felt like my skills. I, there was so much I liked doing, and there's well, there, there were quite a few things I felt like I was good at. But like it, um, it took me a while to figure out like a way of kind of everything coming together, and like um, you know, an area where I could really um, use all of those things and uh, combine them. And I think I found that in NLP. No, that's, that's really cool. And um, it's interesting because machine learning is becoming like a foundational piece of software engineering now. It's no longer this niche fields that's separate from software development, right? I mean, if you're building a search tool or a text analytics application or even a website with a chat interface, um, you know, development and machine learning kind of work together now. And that's not something that happened back in the day or even mm-hmm. a few years ago. Yeah, so it's definitely true that it's quite a mainstream software development technology. Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's not this like deep separation between like the uh, machine learning engineer role and the software development role. And, you know, there's still like a lot of teams that conceptualize it that way. But uh, we generally would uh, encourage people to think of it uh, a little bit more flexibly. And that's also the way that we organize our own teams as well. Like, I think that it's not so productive to have. Uh, you know, a really narrow conception of uh, what somebody will be doing and the types of work that they'll do and be good at based on, you know, maybe what they did at school or what their, their last job was. So, uh, you know, we can see that in our own backgrounds and then I think, you know, it just sort of makes sense as well. So, um, you know, I started off really in my career basically not thinking that, uh, you know, core software development would be something that I, I would be good at. Uh, so, you know, I was never that excellent. I was never so good at maths classes. I always made like careless errors and stuff. Um, always, you know, gravitated more towards English and history type subjects. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, those expectations around what types of subject you do or what type of like, you know, student you are. I think, you know, I was feeling that that sort of self-identification mm-hmm. going back to high school, right? And mm-hmm. You know, then as soon as I tried software development, I was like, oh, actually, I kind of take to this. And, yeah. you know, it really shows that these types of skills, it's not so, it's it's not quite the assumptions that people make around this. No, I mean, so, same, yeah. same for me. Like I felt, you know, I, I, I chose, I specifically did not go into computer science when I, you know, started university, even though, you know, it could have been an obvious choice. But like I never, at that time, I never saw myself as like a developer or pro- a programmer. And I don't, I don't know, it's like kind of, to me, it was sort of a different world. I didn't feel like, oh, that's something I fit into, which is sort of ironic now to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's even more so for you. I mean, obvious demographic factors, right? The thing of, you know, everybody around you not assuming like, oh, you know, you're good at this web stuff, so you'll do computer science, right? Like people just didn't assume that about you the same way that they might have with other people who are programming as teenagers. Yeah, or who are men, for example. Yes, (laughs) to be more specific about what I was referring to there. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But how would you, I guess, describe Spacey to a developer or to someone that doesn't know much about machine learning or NLP? Um, Yeah, like I think how I usually describe it is, well, 
there's there's a lot of text. We as humans produce tons of text, and we've always produced text um, ever since you know we were able to record text, and um, especially over the last decades, like there's tons of text in electronic format, and we want to find out more about this text, and that happens in like so many different industries. And as soon as you know, have a lot of text and you want to know more about it, you eventually want to go beyond just searching for keywords. You want to find out who's talked about in a text. How are these people, concepts, organizations, ideas related? What's the text about? Who does something? Who's an ob who, who does what to whom? Like how, how, how is everything connected? Um, and Spacey is a library that helps you build uh, natural language understanding systems that can process lots and lots of texts and help you find out more about that text. Um, and especially once you have text that's so much that you can't even possibly read all of it. And yeah, that's what Spacey is built for. And that's what you can build with it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, um, uh, I guess, you know, the only thing I'd expand on there is if we think about say most businesses that, you know, are on the web, uh, they're going to either be a content publisher, in which case they're producing more text than like anybody can sort of manually work with, or they have like significant user interaction on them, in which case the users are like adding text and like, you know, working with text from other users and things. Uh, and so in almost all the cases, if there's like sort of these businesses operating on the web, then uh, they're likely to be working with, you know, transacting in all of this text, because this is kind of how humans transact information with each other. Um, so you always get these information processing things and it's working with text and large volumes of text is kind of a fundamental programming issue. So this is why, you know, it's a type of uh, topic that keeps coming up in like many, many code bases, uh, depending on what sort of features you want to work with, especially if you want to, things to, you know, basically operate a bit more smoothly or like, you know, uh, manage these marketplaces and things. Mm -hmm. And I would assume that working with text is not easy, right? But maybe it's like easy enough to build a prototype, but it's definitely not easy to build, you know, a production grade NLP application. Um, you know, at Raza, we like to say that it's easy to build bad chatbots, but to build something <laughs> that, you know, works in the real world, you know, and actually helps users, you need a few things, right? You definitely need solid research that's made available in these user-friendly, developer-friendly workflows. And you definitely need engineering best practices and tools. Um, you also want to be able to listen to user insights because it's really easy for conversational AI because users literally tell you what they want to so listen to that and make those iterative improvements. Um, what do you uh, need or what should you be optimizing for when you're building production grade or enterprise grade NLP? I assume it's not just having 20 billion parameters or something like that. <laughs> So it, um, it really depends on what uh, type of feature you're working with. I guess one thing to, to note as well is that for English, um, the sort of, you know, poor person's uh, solution to working with text of uh, splitting things into on words and maybe like doing some really simple rules to uh, trim down uh, suffixes like, you know, verbs ending in ing or, verb, or uh, plurals and things down to base forms. Those sorts of uh, that sort of simple approach works quite adequately for English, but for many, you know, most languages, uh, it uh, in one dimension or the other, it kind of breaks down. So languages like Chinese and Japanese, 
uh, you need a model just to segment the text into word-like units, right? And then for languages where there's more complexity in the inflections, uh, you needed a model that, to map it down and to understand a little bit more. So I think actually in, as programmers who, you know, work in English, you end up spoiled a little bit in terms of like, oh, actually, you know, the simple model or, you know, the really easy way of doing it actually gets you quite far. But then if you start working in other languages, it, um, you know, you find that it's actually a lot harder already. So I think, yeah, but even within English, um, I think it just depends on, you know, exactly which features they're interested in building and stuff. The use case and the problem itself, like if yeah. you're trying to build, you know, a text analytics tool or something that involves sediment. Yeah. Or something like yeah, that. And I, yeah, and I think another aspect is obviously, you know, you, you also want the domain expertise of like whatever you're doing there. And I think that's, it's, you know, it's the same thing with the chatbot. If, you know, you can just, oh, cool, it's very easy to make a computer, like put out output words that maybe make some sense. But as soon as, you know, you get to the next level and you actually have people using it, interacting with it, you want to understand what is this even about and what does it need to do? How can it fail? How do I deal with it if it fails? Or like when, when it inevitably fails, how often can it fail? For me to be like still happy with it um st stuff like that and i think a lot of that does always involve reasoning about the problem you're trying to solve and not just like i don't know throwing some model at it and yeah. shipping it so i mean it's similar because i would argue that we probably need to do the same things for conversational ai it's very use case specific you need domain expertise or or listen to subject matter experts to make sure that what you're outputting is is accurate and you definitely mm -hmm. want to you know, look at how it fails and, and track them and come up with certain proxy measures. Because, you know, what is a failure, right? I mean, that's yeah. hard to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think all of these all of these things that you need, I think th those are important and those are good. Like I often, I don't know, I, it's almost, I sometimes cringe a bit when I see all these, these um, I don't know, companies that are trying to solve problems like, oh, we need domain expertise. And it's like, that is a problem because that's expensive. So how can we solve this with technology? And it's like, well, no, I mean, of course you need, expertise or like yes you need to think about stuff or you need to yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think I'm, i've been trying to think of an example to make this a little bit more concrete so um i guess um so i one talk about a successful data science project that i, I remember well was um uh i went to a talk by uh, somebody at booking.com and uh the data science project there was um that you know, they send out these emails to you and uh, based on your, you know, account history and the site, they want to recommend like, you know, destinations or travel dates or something like this, right, or, or hotels for you. And if their recommendation model is slightly better than the uh, click-through rate on uh, those emails, is going to be better and they make a few million more dollars because it's a pretty large site. Uh, so you can imagine something like this for... So in, in that specific case, maybe the recommendation there won't use uh, the natural language uh, signals very much because it's actually kind of more important to say, all right, well, you know, what type of user is this? Uh, when are they likely to get um, uh, to be traveling? That sort of thing. So maybe the non-linguistic signals are more important in that specific one. But you can imagine something else like, you know, maybe Airbnb wants to do the same thing and then maybe the text in the listings is super important. So then, you know, you have this uh, task of, figuring out, you know, based on your knowledge, based on the people's knowledge of like how to use this work and where to look and what's likely to be effective. And then what type, what sort of ways you might be, want to use the text. So you pick, they might come up with say 10 different categories to sort the text into and use that as a signal in 
their linear model that does the final recommendations. So this is the type of example of like, you know, the types of projects that people might want to do um, and uh, the ways in which the expertise interacts with the NLP side of things to come up with something that, you know, works in the project. It's not about, you know, basically coming up with some magic model that just does like everything yeah. because you'll, uh, you'll never have enough data that actually allows that to work in a robust way within the context of like the actual project. You'd always want something where you have some control over it so that it doesn't like based on the model deciding, well, it just sends everybody a, uh, a recommendation to the same property or something. This is, you know, they need more guarantees than that. Yeah. And also I think it's actually a good example because it also shows that the outcome that's, you know, that can be very significant for business, which is yeah. like, oh, if the model is a few 2% more accurate, that translates to a few million dollars in revenue, which is like pretty good. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, it's not about like, whoa, we successfully solved cancer. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, or we, we replaced our entire accounting department with a chatbot. It's like, <laughs> no, it, you know, it's like, okay, it's a very subtle um, model improvement that actually translates into value. And that's... Um, yeah. Yeah, that's not as ooh, uh, magical AI, but um, that's, I think, where a lot of the real value also is delivered and happens. Yeah. 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 So the, the other type of project that I think is uh, that's quite common that, uh, you know, to kind of build a uh, sort of a sort of guess of how these, um, like what real projects look like. There's a lot of uh, tasks where the business cares a lot about getting some result even more and more reliable. So maybe like, uh, you know, a mineral exploration company, uh, you know, really wants to, if, as soon as they get advance a project to the next phase uh, of research that costs a certain amount. And so anything that they can do before that to uh, check somebody's work or check the assumptions or something, maybe that's very valuable. And so they'll put on like X number of people uh, to do more checking of uh, internal data or something like that. Uh, but there's diminishing returns on that because certain types of errors that a person makes, well, maybe the next person is going to make the same type of error because human performance in any task is quite correlated with each other. So simply the fact that like an AI model, it may be like way worse than any human, but its error patterns are very uncorrelated with humans. Like our models make mistakes that humans would never make, but then they're very good at catching the types of mistakes that humans might due to inattention or you know, basically various weirdnesses or oversights. So models end up in like these sort of hybrid systems with uh, people a lot of the time as a sort of extra fallback or extra checking or like, you know, extra, uh, you know, a surety of these things. Yeah, no, that's definitely very interesting. So I guess leaderboards and, you know, like benchmarks aren't that relevant when it comes to solving super specific use cases at super specific problems at, at companies and so forth. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a good way for the, commu for the community to exchange knowledge because, uh, you know, if you've got somebody working at, like, say, one mineral exploration company and somebody working at another mineral exploration company, there's really very little way for them to actually compare. They can talk very specifically about what they did, but they really don't know what would have happened if they tried the other one's thing. So, um, you know it does make a lot of sense that like, okay, you, um, you know, we need these leaderboards. It's like, you know, the result of any particular randomized controlled trial doesn't tell you about whether the intervention will work for you or whether like it's going to, you know, be a good idea for you specifically. But, uh, you know, we can't exchange knowledge about health in like these, 
in any other way. It's like the way that we have to actually sort of move forward. So I do, I think there's definitely a place for the leaderboards, but you have to interpret them in context. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think an aspect that often, you know, or sometimes gets uh, lost when people start like applying NLP or like uh, machine learning problems is that if you're, if you are solving like a real problem and you're not competing on an algorithm comparison, you can actually choose how hard or how easy you're making the task for yourself. You couldn't yeah. do that. You know, if I want to compete and I want to, you know, compare my algorithm, I can't just change the whole task and the whole data and everything. And then, you know, I'd probably be achieved better results, but that's really not the point. Whereas, um, you know, if you're focused on an actual problem, you can design your whole problem in a way that's much more solvable. And when you break it down into smaller components that you can solve with machine learning or just phrase it as a machine learning problem, which already, you know, is something you have to do because most real world or business problems don't directly translate into a machine learning problem. Mm -hmm. um, then you can also make decisions along the way that make it easier to achieve your goal. Um, and that's actually usually something that works quite well. Um, well, much better than like, oh, yeah, tuning hyperparameters, for example. Right. Yeah. Or we want to use AI to do something and you don't quite know what, because it's just nice to use AI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for instance, in the context of a chatbot, uh, if you can shape user expectations or like, you know, communicate what the... Uh, a bot is able to do or like, you know, mix in multimedia into its outputs and structured information into uh, in various like sort of choice ways uh, that will greatly increase the satisfaction with um, the agent in ways that, you know, basically wouldn't be valuable in, uh, you know, some benchmark task where, you know, it's trying to, you know, say how accurately the things, the outputs match the expected outputs. That's, you know, and those are the dimensions which are actually going to really matter not these, you know, the things that are going to be legible to a benchmark task. Right. You know, it's not as useful to say, well, it's our model is like 99% accurate, but then, you know, you're not really providing any real value or yeah. deflecting human conversations. You're just answering very basic questions. That's not really helping with the yeah. goal of, you know, decreasing cardabenamin rate or, you know, automating 20 or 30% of conversations in a help desk IT scenario. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually bought a, a TV at Best Buy last year. Uh, Best Buy is this store in the United States. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and I think three weeks after I bought that TV, um, I got an email from Best Buy recommending TVs that were on sale, you know? And so, like, mm -hmm. what's the likelihood of me making a big purchase, like buying a TV and spending, like, $1,000 on it? <laughs> now, how likely am I going to buy another TV three or four weeks from then, right? It's, it's, always, it's such a classic, yeah, it's always... Yeah, but the thing is, like, you, you know, there's uncertainty about every variable, right? So, uh, you know, if you take, like, the probability of will buy TV given seems to have bought TV uh, is pretty high because, or at least higher than uh, it would be for any given person because, um, you know, if you don't know anything about, like, person X and about person Y, you know that they might have just bought a TV, um marketing the TV to person Y is like likely an actual better bet because um, right. the chances that any given person is in the market for a TV is low. So if they're even a little bit unsure that you just bought a TV, they better go ahead and market your TV. And that's why, you know, these things always happen. It's like, you know, from our perspective, when we're sitting there, we know with perfect certainty whether we bought the TV and it's hard to actually model this like, oh, but like actually from their perspective, they don't know that. So, right. yeah. yeah. But I was just laughing at it because it was just a very simple content-based filtering type recommender system. 
And, you know, it's not like they probably needed going back to what we're talking about domain expertise, right? That says, well, people that buy TVs aren't going to buy TVs every (laughs) month or year, not like toilet paper. So maybe you want to look at the product as a a variable that has increased weightage or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, recommendation systems are hard or must be. I'm, I'm very convinced after seeing like all these products and things I services I use trying to recommend me stuff. Um, recommendation systems must be very hard, yeah. especially those in, you know, provided by platforms of very large companies that have a lot of data about me. And sometimes, you know, I'm like scrolling through it on my TV and I'm like, what the fuck, Matt, you know, everything about my life since I was like, what, 14, come on. Like, you, can, you know, you can do a bit better. It's actually, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, I know it's very complex and I'm not going to be like, be like, oh, this recommendation system sucks. But, um, well, I think that the, the classic problem that, um, you know, everybody kind of knows is a problem about these things, but I still think is not really confronted because people are like, oh, well, that's hard, is the extent to which the recommendations change the user behavior. And so you, uh, you're constantly like changing the thing that is being observed as well. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, oh, if we recommend this category, then people like click more of this category. And it's like, well, yeah, but they're being shown so many more links of this category. Um, and so uh, you end up all the time in these like feedback spirals and stuff. And, uh, you know, I think that this changes, this stuff gets, you know, quite difficult and uh, it ends up really hard to measure the impact of the recommendations and whether they're actually changing satisfaction. Um, and, you know, this happens even in like much simpler cases. So for instance, if you're, your example about uh, we want to automate 20% of the uh, user interactions in a call center. Well, that's pretty easy if the chatbot convinces everybody that they should absolutely never con- contact the customer service unless they're asking for, for the opening times. And then, you know, it's like, oh, our satisfaction rates are great. Like, uh, you know, and all of our all of our questions are about opening times. So plainly, we should not bother answering any other type of question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so. this, this also points out another problem, which is um, I don't, I'm relying too much on like, you know, some data metric that you've predefined um, and using that as like the yeah. best. I mean, that works in like very large organizations where it's not even necessarily about the achievement, but mm-hmm. someone's yearly bonus. Yeah. If that's all you care about, you're like, yeah, you know, you better read yeah. like the metrics so yeah. that you get paid more. But like, if it's, you know, if you actually care about the outcome. Exactly. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, Spacey is, you know, a library that's use case agnostic, right? It helps you do interesting things with text, whether it's to identify verbs, nouns, student negation, or, yeah. or whatever. It's a library that you don't necessarily build for specific use cases. Yeah. Correct. But yeah. then, like, yeah. what are, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I think I think you were leading to, to the exact same thing, which is, uh, um, yeah, it's been very cool to see uh, the ecosystem around Spacey grow and also um, people building more specific um, toolkits, um, models, pipelines for more specific use cases, because it's true that like, well, Spacey itself, you know, you can train it on all kinds of data, you can build components for all kinds of tasks. So, uh, for example, there's a project, SciSpacey, which... Um, you know, uses, um, but, you know, provides pipelines and components and models for biomedical texts. Um, there's a project called Blackstone, which is basically, um, you know, very similar, but for legal text. There's a, um, an interesting, um, I think it's, it's fairly new, uh, called Medspacey, which uh, focuses more on medical text. Um, so that's, it's been really excited, exciting to see, um, yeah, all these projects develop. And um, yeah, I think they really show what's possible and also what's possible 
uh, for NLP, if you really you know, think about the very specific requirements for domain um, right. and train some specific models on it and make, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it must be easy as like an open source, well, not easy, but it must be something that you optimize for as an open source company is support the community and, and help out with projects like that. Um, projects that build on top of Spacey or. I yeah, know. I mean, um, uh, we try, uh, Obviously, we try to, you know, stay quite general in the library and, uh, you know, it's good for the user base as a whole if the library, uh, you know, basically takes this sort of, you know, oddly neutral point of view about like, you know, the integrity of the, that piece of code and its library uh, itself because, uh, you know, you want this kind of separation between, uh, you know, those APIs and that level of abstraction and then the stuff that's built on top. Uh, and, you know, this happens in all sorts of projects as well. Like obviously in the Linux kernel, they try to keep clear about where, you know, what the division of responsibilities is. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that Spacey has a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, we've been able to define that quite well. And so uh, these libraries like Blackstone and uh, SciSpacey, you know, are able to work at the sort of user space level and they don't need to, uh, you know, drill down too much into the Spacey internals. and. Uh, we, you know, obviously try to keep the documentation good uh, so that, you know, all of that information's there and we don't need to do so much of this specific engagement. And I think it's also a cool part of, you know, being in a developer tools space because it's not even, not necessarily every open source project is a developer tool, but like if you're building developer tools, of course, the people using your software are developers and they're using it to build other stuff. So there's always this, um, at least yeah. one level of or one layer of um, other things built on top of um, your open source library. So that's... Yeah, that's obviously always very, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, all of us are really excited to hear from you about what's new with Spacey. Uh, if you can talk to us about 3.0. Um, and as I know that, you know, we wanted to schedule a meeting earlier, but you folks were super busy with the release. Yeah. So congratulations on getting it out. Uh, I mean, to, to be yeah. fair, like, as you know, right, currently as this is recorded, we have released a nightly pre-release version um, uh, and we, yeah, we're about to release uh, the stable version, hopefully. Yeah, so far people haven't found it too broken. So, you know, I think- no, no, no. I mean, yeah. actually it's, it's been quite stable. Like we, we specifically, yeah. that's I think also why it was taking longer and why we were, um, you know, hard at work because we did want to ship a fairly stable pre-release um, and really, because I, I think especially, you know, there are lots of cool new things and we really, I, I think we really, um, it came up with new workflow solutions um, for a lot of aspects of the library and that obviously works best if everything works and if everything is there. But, um, well, I think we should we should probably go into what, what we actually built there. Is, mm -hmm. um, yeah. We've actually, yeah. So, Matt, do you want to start? Okay, so um, it, we've changed a lot about the, the way that models are configured and uh, the uh, the pipeline is configured with uh, custom models to basically make it easier to work with uh, custom neural networks and more advanced neural networks. So in terms of uh, the sort of pre-configured pipelines, the big change there is that we've now got uh, great transformer-based pipelines that get accuracies close to the current state of the art. And it's easy to train these uh, with a multitask learning sort of workflow so that you've got one set of transformer weights uh, and you're able to uh, have uh, several pipeline components like the tagger, named entity recognizer, uh, dependency parser text classifier, all uh, using that one transform uh, set of transformer weights and backprop propagating to it. Uh, mm -hmm. So you get pretty efficient multitask learning uh, from this while also having the sort of modular approach in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
that's been a, you know a good way of doing that and we've got a, a cool config system yeah to, yeah um, I mean that was yeah basically I think a big motivation um for spacey three was that obviously the way we do NLP or the way people do NLP has changed a lot over the past couple of years so when we uh, when spacey first came out um there were a lot of users uh, really wanted more of the kind of out of the box thing of like having a pre-configured component, uh, maybe some pre-trained models. Doing a lot of things was also much harder. It was much harder to achieve like um, very useful accuracies on a lot of those tasks. And uh, now over time, there are more and more people entering the field. There are more and more people from all kinds of backgrounds and with all kinds of domain expertise getting into machine learning. Um, most teams have like um, team members who are who actually you know know a lot about how to do machine learning. Um, so then more and more people want to go a bit deeper and really um, work on the neural network level, work on the transformer level, work on you know the specific output level, uh, customize a lot more details um, about how these things fit together. Also to optimize the pipelines for different trade-offs. Like hey, do I want it to run really really fast? Do I want it to be um, you know, super efficient on CPU. Do I want, just want it as accurate as possible? Stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, of course, we still want to keep, um, you know, stay true to um, the core philosophy of Spacey, which is to provide um, reasonable defaults, ease of use, um, an API that just makes it easy to get started um, while also being very powerful. So that's that, that was that was the underlying idea um, that okay, how can we provide this sort of level of developer experience from someone who just wants to get going and train a model as quickly as possible to someone who really wants to fine tune very specific parts of the um, underlying neural network model, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, one problem I think we've always, we've seen previously is that, well, machine learning, machine learning is just really complex. Um, we do, it's, it's a complex task. We're computing very abstract stuff with all of these um, multi-dimensional arrays and um, hyperparameters and, and, and stuff. So, um, and it where it becomes really difficult is if you try to create too many abstractions on top of this complexity, because the complexity is not going to go away and you can't, you know, we're not going to solve machine learning by making it like, you know, one button click. That's not, that's not how any of this works. So yeah. Yeah. we need to accept and embrace the fact that there is a lot of complexity here. Um, and that's ultimately what inspired the new workflows for training models, which is, well, we want to make sure um, that we can represent everything that's going on in a format that makes it easy to customize, um, what, giving users the option to engage with it on any level, um, but without like um, also complicating it in ways that's not um, needed. And yeah. um, and especially, yeah, with machine learning, one the things that commonly go wrong is what well, there's so many little knobs and so many little settings that are spread out across your entire application and your entire model. Mm -hmm. Um, and at any, and you, you know, especially if you do, even if you want to engineer things properly, you have different functions and classes, you write this perfectly nice code base, but then as you're passing your race through your model, you forget to set one hyperparameter and that defaults to something else. And then your whole thing falls apart and you spend two weeks debugging. And that's, <laughs> that's very common. And I feel like most people can relate to that. And um, so um, in order, basically in order to, to prevent that, we've in um, Spacey um, Three lets you provide all your settings and everything about your models and pipelines in a single config file that's resolved, bottom up, that creates functions, that creates objects, that takes care of managing all your settings, and that you can you know define your whole end-to-end -end pipeline in. That's pretty cool. 
so that's that's the underlying idea it's a bit um it's always a you know so it's always it's quite abstract um at times and it, it makes it a bit um you know <laughs> abstract to explain but um yeah. uh, i think um i think what we've come up with is quite elegant and it's also i've also been very happy to see that um users have uh, re really liked it uh, so far and people have found it very um intuitive and cool to work with um so yeah yeah so you've tried to abstract away the complexity or automate the parts that you can reliably automate and there's um, some stuff that you can't necessarily automate i mean it, it can't ever be fully in the end like you can't pip install nlp right uh, there's still yeah. like a lot I mean, I wouldn't call it like, I mean, actually, in, in, in a way, abstracting away the complexity is like the exact opposite of um, <laughs> the, the philosophy of um, Spacely 3 in a way. Um, because, <laughs> because, because basically what we're saying is you cannot just put abstractions on top. What you end up with is, you know, you, you can't have everything be one function call. That's not, that's not realistic. You do, you know, you do need to represent what's there. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, it shouldn't have to be messy and it shouldn't have to be hard to maintain. But like, um, I think a bit trying to abstract away all the complexities and hide them is actually uh, much more problematic. And it also means that you end up with APIs and workflows that are much less programmable and much less extensible. Um, right. Or where you have like hundreds of like, settings that you pass down over, across different layers. Like that's, that is, that's something we've seen as like a big problem in our previous code bases and um, in other things that we've used. So um, basically the idea is no, we're not, you know, we're not doing, we're doing less magic under the hood. We're actually, you know, providing with a way you can see everything that's going on. You have one file, you have one configuration that like gives you everything. Mm. And there's a lot less magic than you otherwise um, would have. Right. So what parts within, you know, when you're pipelining NLP, applications what parts can you reliably automate then um, well I think it comes down to what we mean by automation exactly so um, it, you know I, I think that the I guess one way to talk about the consideration is we, we're trying to come up with you know a good set of primitives that uh, you know you can compose together into like you know a satisfying range of solutions uh, mm -hmm. so you know the there's one way to do, uh, a, you know, any particular thing and it's kind of obvious and that there's like sort of a reasonable uh, set of steps uh, for it based on a few primitives that you have uh, to work with. Um, and so the trade-off is between having more primitives and fewer steps to do any particular thing um, uh, or having fewer primitives and like any solution takes like, you know, more steps. Uh, and so... You know, basically, there's that's the sort of trade-off that we, um, you know, did any programming, uh, you know, any library API and things are trying to sort of balance. Um, so, uh, you know, if we're talking about like, you know, automating something end to end, it's like, well, okay, there's a few steps involved. Often we we're saying, well, you don't necessarily want to drive the number of steps down to one always. So, for instance, if you're trying to say make a text classifier. Um, what we don't want to say is, oh, you know, it works automatically without, uh, say, annotating any data, because uh, we think it's actually much more effective if, like, you know, you model out the problem and say, okay, what categories do I want? And I need at least a, uh, some number of examples of those categories. And the work of coming up with the category scheme for your problem 
it's hard to even get that right without doing some annotation anyway. So we're like, well, it makes sense to expect the user to have some uh, examples for this problem. Uh, and so we don't expect that there's like, you know, this end-to-end -end push button solution that doesn't require any engagement with the problem for say making a text classifier. On the other hand, uh, there's a lot of steps involved there that are kind of well understood that people don't necessarily need to uh, rework. Um, so, uh, you know, steps like, oh, you know, um, it, so, you know, Think has uh, uh, some functions to do sh uh, schedules for batch sizing and learning grades. So you don't necessarily need to define those. Um, again, you can work at say, oh, I want to have a, a learning rate that's decreasing. And so you just plug in the generator for that. Um, but the you know the API takes you know a generator that gives a sequence of values. It doesn't just take a string that's like oh that's the name of one of the five strategies that we have. So you know that's the yeah. The, or the then if you you know you of, you've yeah. been reading a paper and you're like oh there's a super new strategy that I want to try out. Um, you can implement it. Cool. We need to we need to be able to give you an easy way to implement that. And ideally, you know, it needs to be the same mechanism that the rest of the library uses to implement um, all the other built-in stuff. Yeah. Um, or the same, you know, you can use the, our built-in text classification implementation, and that probably, you know, that's optimized for um, a good general purpose use case, and that's probably going to be um, a great way to get started. But if you say, hey, I really, I know exactly what I want, or I really want to um, uh, change the exact features that are being used here, or I want to use this specific transformer model, or like who knows what's, um, yeah, what's coming in the future. Maybe there's some, some completely new um, concept of pre-trained weights that you want to use um, cool, you should be able to do that um, while still giving you, you know, the same data structures, the same uh, familiar API, and you won't have to, you won't have to change anything else. You can just write a function, which is what a developer does. You can plug it into your config file, and then you can rerun your training. You can log your results, um, and it's the same process without, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you don't have to compromise on like. Okay. Yeah. Once you start wanting doing some do, uh, start and want to do something custom, you completely have to you know rewrite everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, end to end, I, I just, we're definitely not there yet. And even if you could, at some point in the future, be truly end to end. I don't know if that's something that we would want to do as like you know makers of open source machine learning software. Because off the top of my head, what if there's a lot of abusive output that you want to identify and solve for, right? I think there's always going to be need for humans. Also, yeah, I think I think in general, it's like um, even if you're looking at end to end, as in like you know predicting stuff end to end, or just okay, you you have your data or your concept, and then you let like a machine figure out the rest. That's it's that's interesting. That can tell us a lot about how these models work. That's an interesting research topic. But often, if you're actually trying to solve a real problem, you have a much more concrete idea of like what the problem is that you're trying to solve and how you want to get there you maybe understand some of the trade-offs some of the potential problems that can happen if you're not um you know paying close attention to this and you might have different types of resources that you can use maybe one piece of the problem only requires looking something up in the dictionary something else is a bit more abstract where you want to make predictions and at any point you might want to iterate and try out a different approach that becomes very very difficult if you treat everything you want to do as like oh I feed it. Yeah, I have input and expected output, and then I let a black box do the rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you know, there's always this question of like, okay, how do you want to exert control over the system as well? Like, how do you mm -hmm. make it, you know, do the thing that you want it to do as opposed to something else? So 
you know, and I think in machine learning, the, the main way that you do that is by providing the data that, uh, and, you know, to some extent, the loss function, depending on uh, the level of abstraction that you're working at, to like make it do the thing that you want it to do. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think it's like, we kind of shouldn't want it to be more automated than that. That's like, you know, it's like, it's one thing to say, all right, I want the car to be self-driving, but, you know, I don't want it to select a destination. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, that's a great like, example, yeah. It, you know, it's like, oh, it's a car yeah. that's so clever, it, you know, you don't even it knows I where have to tell it where to go. And it's like, but right. can I? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, and often a lot of these things aren't the bottleneck. It's like, yeah, sure, we can say, right. hey, it'd be great if yeah. we could train a system with uh, fewer examples or fewer examples that are a bit more specific. Like, yeah, sure, you wouldn't want like billions of data points. Like that's, um, but we're kind of yeah. there already. That's like, this whole like, ooh, big data thing. That's that's a bit like outdated. Um, anyway, so, um, but like the bottle, the bottleneck is usually not like, you know, the number of examples you create and, um, you know, the sort of behavior you program that way. I can, you know, I can sit down and create like, you know, a few hundred annotations in like, what, half an hour? Um, you know, that's well worth it because it, that's exact. That's how I tell the system how I want it to behave. And the more examples I can give it, the better, you know, the results will be. It's like, yeah, cool. Maybe there's some pre-trained weights I can use where I can get similar results by only labeling two examples and it happens to work. And that's, that's quite impressive. But is that really the kind of solution I want to prefer and want to Well, yeah, and you know, you know, the other thing is that, like, if it only takes two examples, right, that's very little for it. This, it's still guessing so much about the rest of the, the space. Like, you know, you can imagine telling a person, okay, these are the behaviors that I want, and you give them two examples, and they have to go away and guess so much else about your preferences in order to get them right. And, you know, maybe their guesses are right, um, maybe they're wrong. But, you know, normally when you're working with a person in that sort of situation, there's, uh, you know, you want them to come back to you with those things to clarify some of those requirements. And you kind of expect that as the task goes on, that there will be these other cases where, you know, oh, you know, it's kind of not clear and that they need extra requirements mm. and that needs to be actually, flushed actually out. Actually, to take, to take this, this sort of metaphor a bit further, it's actually, it's actually kind of good because, like, you know, the person's knowledge and the person's cultural background sort of stands for, like, the pre-trained model you might be using or the pre-trained, like, I don't know, language model or something. And, mm. you know, if I, yeah, I don't know, if I, if I t tell a person from, like, my, my cultural background, like, hey, I want you to perform some dance moves and I show that person two dance moves, mm. um, Based on that, they might be able to, you know, give me dance moves that I'm like, yeah, exactly, that's a dance. But like, as soon as I talk to a person, maybe with, I don't know, a different cultural background, right. their dance routine might look very different and like completely not what I want. And that's not because they're bad. Um, right. That's because, um, you know, I gave them two examples and assumed mm -hmm. the rest that, that, you know, my my understanding would match theirs. Right. So, um yeah, or you know, you end up recommending me a TV three weeks after I bought one. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I mean, you're always up to something super interesting. You know, you're working on Think, Explosion, Spacey. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other projects that you're working on right now? Or, um, um so the one which we've uh, had in development for a long time. Uh, so first of all, there's our annotation tool Prodigy, which is, uh, you know, the uh, main thing that's like, you know, that's been out for a long time and it's been, you know, we've been pleased that that's been getting popularity. Um, and then we've got, uh, you know, another version of that uh, Prodigy teams that we've been working on. 
So that's, you know, a bit more enterprise focused or like focused on larger teams. Yeah. And the idea here is, well, yeah, as we said earlier, we think that, okay, working close data is the core of your application and working closely with the data can be very um, beneficial. And it's been nice to see that. Yeah, sure. There are lots of other, lots of people who agree. Um, and uh, yeah, we initially launched Prodigy as our first commercial product and really with focus as a developer tool um, that lets you program workflows, program workflows to label your data, train, experiment, work with a model in the loop um, and so on. And um, yeah, we take it, we're basically taking that to the next level um, and providing um, more user experience around well, managing larger annotation projects, managing teams, um, but also by providing the same sort of scriptability and developer focus, because um, but yeah, we've seen that's incredibly important. Your, you know, the develop, the, the data development process is a part of your development process, just like writing code is not, if not um, even more so. And um, that's also why, yeah, the, the, that type of development needs to be integrated into the same development workflow. And, um, yeah, so Prodigy teams will basically give you like a, you know, like more of a software as a service like um, app uh, that you can connect to your cluster. You'll be able to run larger jobs. You'll be able to script your workflows, run them, um, um, you know, stream them out to different people who are working on them, measure how, you know, do, do, these, do the people agree? Um, do they not agree? What are uh, maybe some ambiguities, maybe some problems uh, in the data um, that, you know, you, you should solve before you train your model um, mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, I just think that this proliferation of dev tools for machine learning has been so amazing and so welcome and definitely much needed. You know, whether it's with respect to data or pipelining or connecting to CI CD or doing something with Git. Um, yeah, definitely about time that we got like some tools for machine learning applications. Yeah, and you know, the ecosystem's still quite young. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, by any by any reasonable measure, the like machine learning field is like you know quite small relative to what it'll be in a few years as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's you know pretty clear that we'll see increasing uh, adoption of it. And uh, you know I also think that the industry will work out how to have projects that succeed a little bit more often. Uh, I think there's still a lot of uh, you know pilot projects going on, uh, and uh, you know a lot of what organizations are doing is kind of filling out their steps in this space. And so we'll see, you know, I think increasing evolution of like, you know, understanding of how to run these projects and how to get better at them and how to get better value out of them and, you know, what types of uh, stuff to target. Uh, and, you know, I think that'll continue driving more and more like, you know, activity and investment in it. I think that's an important point that you bring up. I mean, it's, I think it would make sense to see more successes, especially in the industry with enterprises. But I think a lot of that also has to deal with some of the, all of the pitfalls that we talked about, right? Not having domain expertise or optimizing for like the wrong solution or focusing on standard generic metrics too early without really listening to your users and working also, on- I've, I've, Yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of these problems are problems that we've had before machine learning as well. Like if you look right. at, you know, it's not like, it's not just like that, uh, I don't know. <laughs> a lot it's of not other like machine learning invented expensive projects that didn't succeed. That fail, yeah. I mean, if you look at enterprise, it's like, yeah, there's a lot that failed and things have yeah. always failed. And things have yeah. failed even more spectacularly than they do now. So it fails a lot. I mean, yeah. it's just how it is. Like humans <laughs> fail. Yeah, humans fail. I mean, Twitter sure. barely works and we're all on there 24-7, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I, I get the, I always got the sense and, you know, I wasn't in, inside any of these organizations. So my outside perspective might've been wrong, but I always had the sense that a lot of the big data things were basically like, you know, kind of digitalization uh, investments or like real catch up projects uh, that, you know, sort of motivated by those internal things and had this like veneer of like, you know, cool technology on top of it. Um, but really it was about, you know, okay, getting off paper and like, you know, getting some of their data captured more and, you know, that sort of uh, preventing some of some you know, obvious problems. And so I think we've seen some uh, things like that in, uh, in AI as well, where there's projects which were motivated by other reasons within the organization uh, and you know, purely from an AI perspective, it's hard to have success, but that, you know, there was a reason they were funded for, you know, basically other reasons as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's always this sort of mixture of things and it's, you know, projects often have multiple aims. And so it's difficult to say like whether it was a success or a failure in, you know, any one dimension. Um, oh, I forgot to ask, how do people get started with Spacey uh, 3.0 if they want to check it out today? Is that something that's available? Um, if so, how can... Um, yeah, so we have, uh, you know, you could install it. Currently, you can install it as Spacey Nightly from PIP. Um, you can find, like, all details on the website or on nightly.spacey.io. Uh, we have a whole guide of what's changed, um, how to get started. We've actually built a few more quick start widgets, which, um, you know, I always love where you can, you know, you can select your use case um, while reading the docs and then it generates you maybe a command to run uh, to install it or it generates you a config file to get started for training, um, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that's uh, that's definitely something that's there. And um, yeah, you can, yeah, it, it all works. It's all there. So you can you can try it. <laughs> no, I mean, I often feel like nowadays it's something you have to explicitly say. It's like, yes, it exists. Yes, this, <laughs> this is, it looks like a product and it's actually a product which you can buy yeah. like no it's not fake not um, just no. a landing page out there yeah this, it, it goes way beyond um, a landing page it all it, it's all real <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah i mean yeah. it is an open source library but like yes well in, in this case yeah. no but i meant in, in general yeah, it's know, like you know you get if you on the internet you get so used to like shit not actually existing yes um so yeah <laughs> just hype just straight up vibes and hype <laughs> uh you know there's a lot of talk about sort of getting to like the next breakthrough, right? Whether it's in conversational AI or NLP. Um, for us at Raza, we maintain that it might not come from a big company releasing a 20 billion parameter language model or anything like that. Conversational AI needs, you know, listening to users in our community and using those insights to make continuous improvements. Um, we definitely need dev tools and people building together. Um, so we believe that we do need this open source movement, similar to what we had with the web 2.0, where everyone's able to contribute meaningfully, right? And it's not just three or four companies leading the way. Uh, curious to hear you know, your thoughts on, I don't want to say breakthrough because that sounds very hypey, but where I, do you see, how do you see the field? Yeah. It's way like, more right. about consolidation than, uh, you know, like research advances. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's some things which will, help in uh you know basically like gpu stuff getting like a bit cheaper and like latency improving and stuff but um almost all of it's basically just like you know tech penetration so uh you know people understanding how to 
uh, take the raw materials of the research results that are there and continue to shape them into systems that users love using that uh, meet the business purposes that are, you know, a sort of sensible as a fit for the, what the technology can do, um, shaping user expectations, uh, these sorts of things. So, you know, I think a, a huge amount of it will just come from like the familiarity of users with what we're working with uh, models. So this was something where like, you know, I remember a few years ago, um, you know, basically anything that any behaviors of the system, people would imagine that like it was, in, you know, a specific intentional act from a human. And so that context made it very difficult to integrate predictive uh, you know, or lossy sort of things into the user experience because it looked weird. Um, whereas now that's no longer the case and, you know, the user interaction has like, you know, these different premises and different contexts behind it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, really, really strongly about consolidation, not about like, you know, more advances from the research, yeah. which will basically, I think for the next few years, at least be mostly about make, getting the same sort of stuff, but cheaper and more practical and maybe a little bit more accurate. No, no, and I also think just in, um, um, in general, expertise spreading out um, across yeah. different countries, uh, different companies, industries, um, because um, it's, it's interesting because I actually, I did a, I did a talk um, called uh, The AI Revolution Will Not Be Monopolized um, a couple of years, a couple of years ago, probably, mm -hmm. um, where, where basically I made a similar point of like, well, um, you know, the idea, we're not, a few years ago, people were maybe still talking about like, oh, who's going to win at AI? Is it Google or uh, Facebook or Microsoft? Or who are we going to buy our AI from in the future? And, um, you know, pe some people still like look at it that way, but I think we've definitely seen that this is not what the future looks like. We're not going to buy our AI from Google. Um, sure, we have massive players and that's something you have to watch, but like there's just more right. and more development going on in lots of places and more and more people using technologies, more and more companies moving it in-house. Uh, people don't want to just consume a model or some right. arbitrary like AI from somewhere. Um, yeah. We're at a point where people can under people understand how it works and how they can manipulate these systems. And um, I think that's, that's definitely a very positive um, development. And I do think, you know, of course, open source plays a big role in that. Um, mm -hmm. Democratizing that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I don't. I personally don't like using that term because I think it's kind of uh, it's overused and it's it it sort of has kind of the wrong ring to it. I don't think I don't mm. think we should be talking about it as democratizing. But um, yes, I, I I think we 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 mean the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and tools too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More tools. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so we'll definitely provide a few links to Spacey um, so that folks can can check it out, which I'm sure they know how to do anyway. But um, how do folks get in, in touch with you if they want to ask follow-up questions or learn more about what, what you'd be up to? Um, so uh, Twitter is always a good place to uh, engage with the, uh, if that's, you know, basically yeah. a right medium for that type of question for more dev uh, uh, things um, about, uh, Prodigy, we have a forum for that, and then there's the issue tracker for space. Yeah, but in general, I think yeah, we always we like talking about stuff publicly. I think it also it's always very nice because it means you know more people can benefit from the discussions. Yeah. Um, so like I mean I, I don't know maybe some people would be like oh email me and I don't want to sell you know I always feel rude to say like ah maybe don't email me because it's 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 just um, <laughs> it, no no it's 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 you know it's just more friendly and cooler if, if like you know if we can have conversations publicly and more people can. You know, see answers and learn from that so yeah. um 
Yeah, we always ask that people post to our forum. That way they start mm-hmm. a discussion and then everyone can contribute and learn from that too. So Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the thing that's really it's still disappointing in like running an open source project is uh that uh you can have like the issue tracker and then if you try to basically have this perspective that like, okay, there's only one type of thing that should be there, then you basically will spend your life chasing people onto like the other place that you're telling people to go to. So, you know, mm-hmm. if it's like, oh, for discussions, we should be going to this forum, then you're just constantly like, you know, yelling at people to like post on the forum. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a shame because I've, I've, I'm looking forward to the GitHub discussions being more, you know, more of a thing because I do feel like a forum would be better and an issue tracker isn't the best yeah. type of forum. No, but I think from but, what I've heard, like this is this is definitely something that GitHub's like. Oh, um, they've been working on it and, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. It's one of the things that, you know, I'm still like, you know, it's still this like slight dissatisfaction with like running the open source yeah. project is like, how do we manage the community? In yeah. this and I think also in general, the other thing is, of course, you know, you have to realize if you're doing open source, you're mostly hearing from people who like have some problem, right? So it's it's like, you know, you hear from someone who says, oh, that doesn't work. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a bit more rare that like, oh, someone just sends an email and says, hey, your software is great. Like pe- people do that. And it makes, <laughs> always makes me very happy, but I'm like, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't expect that from someone. And I, I certainly don't do that very often. Either, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I, I don't know, it just feels weird. I understand that. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not, but it, it is, it, I don't know. I sometimes have to really sit down and remind myself that like, well, of course, most of the things I'm seeing are like people, um, mm-hmm. oh, we see a lot of positive well, things. Well, of course I see a lot of positive things, but if you look at just, you know, the issue tracker or something, no, and sometimes it's, it's difficult yeah. to put it into perspective. Or sometimes I meet people who are like, oh, I've been using your software for a long time and it's great. And I say, you know, I filled all these things. And I'm like, oh, wow, I've never heard from you. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah because there are lots of people who just right. install something and make it work. And, um, yeah. Yeah. and you know, not, not that I'm saying, oh, people, you know, filing bugs is bad. Like, no, that, that's great too. There are lots of community members who... I, you know, I see a lot of because they're reporting bugs that we then fix. So, right. yeah. Or better yet, help us fix it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Forward, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Ines and Matt, thanks so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed it. And please come back anytime. We would love to chat with you about, you know, spacey things, explosion, whatever. So thank you for your time. Sure. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Thanks. Welcome to Raza Shoutouts, a segment where we like to recognize our amazing community. Shout out to Ng Wai Fung. They wrote an article um, called What's New in Raza 2.0? Build Your Own Chatbot, where they go over some of the major differences between Raza Open Source 1.0 and Raza Open Source 2.0. Shout out to Hashir Abdul-Bashir who conducted a test to see if Raza is able to handle Arabic language for intent classification, entity recognition, and dialogue management, and shared his findings in an article called Can Raza Assistants or Chatbots Speak Arabic? Shout out to Raza hero Kobus Grilling, who wrote about how the new Raza playground works and his early impressions after playing around with it. The article is called The Importance of Chatbot Prototyping and How Raza's Playground Can Help. Check out this post by Simon Gornick, where he shares some concrete guidelines for getting more users to connect with your Raza assistant in the why and how of humanizing digital conversations. Thanks to Dishant Gandhi for writing an article on how to add buttons to a Raza assistant on Android 
um, called How to Add Buttons to a Raza Chatbot on Android, so be sure to check out that tutorial. Thanks to Aju, who found a solution to save all the conversation history into uh, the Firebase Firestore database and shared it with the Raza community on our forum. So be sure to check out that post on our forum called Custom Tracker to save conversation history into Firebase Firestore. And finally, check out this tutorial by Harsh Sharma for an in-depth walkthrough of Raza, plus a demo of how to work with Raza locally and how to deploy your bot and integrate with Telegram in developing chatbots with Raza from intuition to implementation and deployment. And that's it for this week. See you next time.